When I was a youth pastor at the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church, our church had a Thursday night visitation program. The visitation program, you generally visit, you you had four or five different ways you could serve. There was one where you could stay and pray. Um, Others sent postcards. And we had people who went out to visit. Those who went out to visit went in kind of three different groups. You went to, some went to just cold knock doors and talk to people about Jesus. Others went to follow up with visitors that had visited our church that Sunday. And others went to see people who had not been to church in a while. And as the youth pastor, as a general rule on Wednesday, on Thursday nights, I went to visit either families that had kids or I went to visit the kids themselves that had not been there. One particular Thursday night, Brother Tommy, uh, our pastor, gave me the person I was going to see, which he never really gave me the people I was going to see. I sort of picked it on my own. Uh, and he said, here, I want you to go see this lady. She visited on this, uh, this past Sunday. And when we went to visit visitors, we always took them a, a little basket of goodies that were homemade and some information about the church and something like that. They said, give these to her, talk to her, and tell me how it went. And I said, well, why am I going to see her? I said, I remember her. She didn't have any kids or anything. And, and he said, he looked at me and he said, you'll see when you get there. I said, okay. So I went and I, I knocked on her door. And she answered, and I told her I was from the, she was real friendly, hi, how are you? And I said, I'm from the Fort Gibson Free Baptist Church, I just want to thank you for visiting with us this past Sunday. And when I mentioned where I was from, her whole demeanor changed. Uh, and she became very standoffish, and she launched for the next ten minutes into a, a tirade about all the things that were wrong with our church. It turns out she had seen the pastor's wife do something that she didn't like. So for the next 10, 15 minutes, she, she rattled off this series of offenses and inadequacies that she had noticed in her one and only visit to the church. When she was through, she snatched the plate of cookies out of my hand, rejected taking any of our literature, slammed the door, and from the other side of the door, I heard, good day. I knew why Tommy had sent me then, because it was his wife that had upset her, and he didn't want to have to deal with that. Um, I, I blinked for a second or two. I said a prayer of thanksgiving that that visit was over with, and I went on about the rest of my night. And, and I learned a very important lesson about serving Jesus on that day. And that is that serving Jesus is not always easy. Right? Sometimes we have to serve in uncomfortable ways. Sometimes we have to, to go and we're hurt and we have to do what we don't want to do. Sometimes we want to quit and we have to keep going. And anyone that's ever been very active in their service to Jesus for very long knows that this is the truth. You know what it is to fill a position that you feel inadequate to fill. You know what it is to serve in an uncomfortable position. You know what it is to, to serve faithfully despite emotional and spiritual, maybe even physical pain. You know what it is to, to take one for the team and then keep on going. Why do we serve Jesus in this way? Why do we do the uncomfortable things? Why do we take one for the team and keep going? We're going to answer those type of questions today. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 9. It's page 884 if you've got a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Second Corinthians 5 and 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
<clears throat> Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust that we are known in your consciences. The title of the message this morning is Serving Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, you have given us so much and you have done so much in our lives. Most of all, you have sent Jesus to die for our sins and to rise again so that we can be saved and have a relationship with you. Know you in this life and know you better in the next. Father, today we come as a people that desire to live for you and bring you glory and honor. We want to do the things that you want us to do, but often it's hard. We struggle, we feel inadequate, we wrestle with issues in our own lives, and we just need you to guide us today. We need you to send your Holy Spirit to help our hearts and minds be centered upon your word so that we can listen and we can hear what you want us to have. We need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts that we can receive it. God, the old song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. God, we are more prone to wander in the area of not taking your word personally than probably any other. So God, today help us to, to sit with surrendered hearts, surrender to your word and surrender to your spirit with an, an eagerness and a desire to learn from you and to hear from you. I ask you today to fill me with your Holy Spirit, to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. We do not need to hear from me, we need to hear from you. So use me as a vessel and accomplish your will in our hearts and our lives today. The way we respond and how we live tomorrow be a testimony of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. We ask in His name. Amen. You may be seated. To really get a hold of what Paul is saying in verses in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, we kind of have to, to go back some to chapter 4. Chapter 4 in verse 8, the Apostle Paul, well, really chapter 4, Paul is talking about having a gospel ministry and why he does what he does in sharing the gospel with others. Chapter in verse 8, he talks about hardships he endures. We're Hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed, yet not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. He's just explaining that there are, there are times in his service to Jesus where things have been hard. And I think in a general way, the hardships he's describing in verse 8 and 9 would apply to all of us. I think in a very general sense, we all have go through times where we feel hard-pressed and pers- or perplexed and persecuted and and all of these things. But I think in a very specific way, Paul was talking about in his service to Jesus. These weren't the ordinary trials of life that he was facing. These were trials that were related to his faithfulness and his devotion to Jesus. As he served Jesus, these things came into his life. Despite the hardships and despite the troubles that were coming into his life in his service to Jesus, the Apostle Paul did not quit. He just sort of kept on going. He says in verse 16 that because the Lord Jesus is with him, he does not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. He knows that it's difficult and and he's probably tempted, I would say, to lose heart, but he doesn't because of the, the change that Jesus Christ has made in his life and is continually making in his life. Verse 17 is what I would say 
say is one of the most challenging verses in all of the New Testament. He said, for our, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Right? And so he, he's listed these things that he's going through. And later in the book, he'll talk about more specific things. But what he's saying is that what he suffered, it's really small and it's just for a moment in comparison to glory. Right? What he will receive when he sees Jesus will make what he has suffered worthwhile. In fact, it's similar to what he says in Romans 8 and 18 about the, the suffering of this present life cannot compare to the glories of the second. And so in chapter 5, he's continuing this thought that despite hardships, despite trials, despite persecutions, he's, he's not going to give up. Right? He, he walks by faith and not by sight. It's, by sight it seems difficult, by sight it seems fruitless, but he's trusting in Jesus. He's going to keep doing, and so he's, he's confident. Ready to go and be with the Lord. But while he's here, he's going to do all that God wants him to do. And as I thought about all of this, I was thinking about what we're looking at. What I thought about for Paul is that really serving Jesus, that was the driving force of his life. Not comfort, not ease, not anything else. Serving Jesus was the driving force of his life. And what was true for Paul, I think, should be true for us as well. Serving Jesus should be the driving force of my life. That should be what we're about, what we're focused on, what we want to, to do in life, no matter what. We want to serve Jesus. Now, I think it's easy enough to say that serving Jesus is the driving force of my life, but... But on a more practical level, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us um, what it shows us what it looks like to serve Jesus. First, I live to please Jesus. He says in verse nine, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him, be well pleasing to Jesus. And the idea of we make it our aim is almost like it's a goal, right? Paul's target, when you ask him, what is your number one goal in life, Paul? It is to to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus Christ. That was his goal. That was the target. That's what he aimed for every day of his life. From the moment he got up to the moment he went to bed, that was the aim of what he was doing. And I like that picture of it kind of being a goal, right? It being the aim of our life because... Probably at one point or another, we have all set goals of things we want to accomplish. And if you set goals, you know that you have to be specific, right? If you really want to accomplish a goal, you can't just say, I want to read more books, right? That's not really a goal. That's a wishful statement. If you want to accomplish a goal, you have to say, I'm going to try to read four books this year or something along those lines. You have to be specific. You have to be intentional about it, right? Because any goal that you want to accomplish, it's not just going to happen. You have to to seek it. You have to focus on it. You have to be intentional about it. You have to make it an aim to do that. And in order to to accomplish your goal, there's other things you can't do. So let's say, again, you want to read four books this year, four books more than you normally read. What's that part of what that means is you may not be able to watch Netflix all the time at the house, right? You may not be able to play Angry Birds as much. There, There are some things you're not going to be able to do so that you can do. This other thing is to accomplish this goal. And that's the way Paul was in his service to Jesus. He wanted to live a life that was pleasing to Christ. He wanted to honor him and all that he did. And so there were certain things that he did because of this. And there were certain things that he he didn't do because of this. 
So what does it mean, though, to live a life to please Jesus? I think, you know, there are a lot of actions and activities the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about being holy, caring for others, being generous, sharing the gospel. These are all true. And I believe all of these please Jesus. But when I was thinking about what it is to what what is most pleasing to Jesus, I think the overall one main thrust would be to do what brings him glory. All throughout the Bible, God's main desire was that his people would glorify his name, that they would make him seem great to the world at large. He wanted his people to live in such a way that unbelievers would see who they were and how they lived and say, they have a great God. I want what they have. And the Bible teaches that, in fact, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the the power, if you will, to either honor the name of God or to shame the name of God. Let me just show you a couple of verses that say this. Honor. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. That there is a, a way that we can live. And again, I like Matthew because it's a pretty practical verse. Right? He doesn't say, let your doctrinal statements be so clear. Right? He doesn't say that you stand for moral issues on Facebook. Now let your, your life, let your works bring glory To him who has saved you. The actions you take. In a similar way, our actions can bring shame. You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. And again, it's it's actions. The way that we live our lives either brings glory to Jesus or it brings shame to Jesus. That's a... There's a weighty thought, and it should be. People all around us, they make eternal decisions about Jesus and salvation, God, the Bible, and the church, based off of what they see in us. The way we live can have eternal ramifications in another person's life. I think that's a a heavy thought, and it should be. The way that we live matters. So we should make it our aim, the focus of our lives, to live in a way that pleases Jesus because it brings glory to Jesus. So how do we do that? I think when you get right down to it, I think the main way we do that is just living the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. I don't think it's it's difficult. I think simply we live the difference that Jesus has made. Let me show you this. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, page 880 in your pew Bibles. Galatians 1 and 10, in the rest of the chapter, Paul is talking about his life. And he's talking about the difference that Jesus has made. Now, verse 10 is such an important verse. I like this. He says, but now do I persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? 
Uh, For if I pleased men, I should not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul makes the point. They were accusing Paul of all sorts of things that were wrong. Paul said, am I who am I trying to? Am I trying to please? I mean, but look at the life that I live. Am I really trying to please man or am I trying to please God? And, And he says, if I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You know, the reality is. Paul was pretty well liked by the world at large when he was a Pharisee. The Jewish people liked him. He came from a well-known family, an established family. He had a a good reputation. But, But when he turned his life over to Christ and began to serve Jesus... He lost his friends. He he lost his job. He lost his family. The the people that liked him so much before didn't really like him that much after. And what we see with Paul is he had a choice to make when he committed his life to Jesus. Paul could live a life that would please the people. Or he could live a life that would please the Savior. But Paul could not do both at the same time. He had to choose which one he would seek to please. Which one would he strive to bring glory to? Which one would he live, make the aim to please? It was the choice that was before him. And the choice that was before Paul, I believe, is the choice that is usually before us. Right? I believe that as a, as a general principle, we can please people or we can please Jesus, but we can't please both. I don't believe it is possible to live a life that is fully devoted to Jesus and our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our priorities, our our morals, our beliefs in in all things. And yet have everyone else around us say, excellent. I believe there will always be times in our lives where we have to make a choice. Am I going to seek to please these people or this person? Or am I going to seek to please my Savior? The choice, I believe, is always before us and we have to choose. Now, Paul, Paul chose Jesus. And the rest of this chapter, Paul goes on and explaining something about what he was like before he was saved. He explains about being a persecutor of the church, how he advanced Judaism, how he was a Pharisee devoted to the law. And how everything went along fine until Jesus came along and kind of messed up his plan for life. Jesus came along and Jesus changed everything. And once Jesus changed Paul's life, Paul began then to go out and to live the difference Jesus made. And that's what he talks about starting in verse 16 on. He didn't confer with people. He just went out and what he began to do was he went out to preach Jesus. Right? That, that's what, before he was doing all that he could to destroy the name of Christ, now he was going out to do everything he could to make known the name of Christ. And look at what he says in verse 22. And I was unknown by face, the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. They were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted, he now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Right? So basically, here's all that Paul did. I mean, we could say, well, Paul planted churches and he healed people and he wrote books. He did all of that for sure. But to boil it down to the simplest principle of what Paul did, he met Jesus. Jesus made a difference in his life. Paul lived that difference. That's really all he did. And what was the result of Paul going and living that difference? Look at verse 24. And they glorified God in me. He let his light so shine before men that they saw his good works. 
And they glorified his father in heaven. For us, it's really the same thing. Our good works will be different than Paul's were. Right? In order for us to, to live a life that glorifies God, to, to aim to please Him in our life, we don't have to go to Africa and be missionaries. We can, but we don't have to. We don't have to be pastors. We don't have to sell all of our goods to give to the poor. We, we, don't, we don't have to do a lot of the things that we think of with this. Here's all that we have to do. Live the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. To be different in our attitudes and our actions. Our reactions and our priorities. Our interactions with others. To live in a way that is consistent with Scripture so that when people see who we are and how we live, they will recognize our God is great. And they will want to know what makes a difference. In our lives. To live. To please Jesus. It is not complicated. You just live the difference he's made. And let people see it. Not in a hey look at me kind of way. Just in a go about your life. Being who Jesus wants you to be. Doing what he wants you to do. And people will see a difference. This is a part of what it means to let serving Jesus be the driving force in your life. It is to live a life that brings Him glory and honor. Secondly, I have to live in light of accountability. Turn back to Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul understood the idea that one day he would be accountable to Jesus Christ in his life. I think often what we've done is we have... Got the idea of being accountable, of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And we have said, well, that's, what, that's for unbelievers only. Believers are, are free from that. We don't have that. But this passage makes that a difficult position to take because Paul says, for we must all appear. So he's including himself and he says all. You know, the reality is every one of us will at some point stand before Jesus and give an account for the life that we've lived. I mean, that's what he talks about. Uh, receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But there is a, a day of judgment coming. There is one for unbelievers, and it's different than the one that will be for believers. But there absolutely is a day of judgment coming for believers. Let me show it to you. Flip back to chapter uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians three verses ten through fifteen talk about this day of judgment. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, 
It's a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Let each one take heed on how he builds. Now, for there is no other foundation, verse 11, which anyone has than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You and I, when we believed in Jesus Christ and were saved, the foundation of Christ was laid in our life. That is the, the foundation for us. But from that moment on, we begin to build onto that foundation. Paul talks about it. He says, now, if anyone were to take heed how we build, be careful, because if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Right? So there are two types of materials that we can build with, the, the precious and the permanent or, or the paltry and the perishable. Right? And all throughout our lives, we build constantly from the day that we were saved up until the day we go to be with Jesus. We build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We either choose that which is precious or that which is paltry. We choose that which is permanent or that which is perishable. But we build all the time. And he says in verse 13 that each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. So this is that day of judgment. There will come a day where we have to give an account for what we've built how we've built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And really from verse 13, I think there are three important truths that we have to understand. Number one is that it will be me. Right? Again, when you take what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, for we will all stand. Verse 13, it says each one's work. Right? The reality is, if you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, what is being described right here is something that will happen to you. You and I, we will each stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for the life that we've lived out of our service to Jesus. Right? I've known people at various points that were convicted about something in their lives. They felt that they, they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing or they weren't doing something they should have been doing. So they told somebody, they told another believer, I really feel like I need to stop doing this and start doing that. And the believer, who I'm sure was well-meaning, would say, I don't know if that's really a sin. I think you're probably okay. Right? Try to talk them out of a change that, that God was wanting to make into their lives. I've known people at various times who have said, you know, I think I need to be more active in my service to Jesus, only to have other well-meaning Christians say, you're great. I mean, man, you are, you are fantastic in all that you do. You don't want to get carried away. I mean, you don't want to be one of those fanatics that, that goes overboard in your service and your devotion to Jesus. Right? I, I, and you name anything where someone has said, I want to, to do more, to be more. There's always been someone there to comfort them, to tell them they're okay just like they are and they don't need to make any changes. But on this day, they will not be there to vouch for you. On this day, it will be you and Jesus. But I, and, and really, the only opinion that's going to matter is Jesus' opinion. Right? If, if I let Fred talk me out of serving Jesus because I'm great the way that I am and I do plenty, and then I stand before Jesus, I'm not going to be able to say, but Fred said I was okay. Tell him, Fred. Tell him I'm okay. Fred won't be there. Fred has his own issues to worry about. But on this day, there won't be anyone to vouch for you. There won't be anyone to say, I talked them out of it. I told them they were good enough. The only opinion that will matter will be Jesus's. It will be you and him as he deals with you about what you've used to build on the foundation. Very personal, very intimate. 
me and Jesus. And then the final truth, that it will be me, Jesus, and my works. It says, and each one's work will become clear. And I like that. There, there's a picture there. Right? Because I'm not 100% sure how this is going to work, but I'll tell you how I imagine it. Because he talks about it being tested with fire. So the way I kind of imagine it is, there, there's going to be Jesus up on the throne. There will be me down from the throne. And then there will be something here in a great big pile of stuff that represents all the things that I've done in my life since I've been saved. Some of those things will be wood, hay, and stubble. Some of those things will be gold, silver, and precious stones. And, and then there's going to be fire that comes up and tests what's there. Now, the wood, hay, and straw, it's going to burn up. It's going to be gone. The gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. On that day, I can't, I can't explain away what's there and what's not there, can I? On that day, it's going to be kind of an absolute thing. Because aren't we good at, at justifying our lack of service or what we're doing? Aren't we good at trying to make our wood, hay, and straw sound like it's gold, silver, and precious stones and how, what we're building with? And yet on this day, we won't be able to do that. It's just going to be very absolute, very clear what's there. And then the fire is going to test it. And, and what is burned up is going to be gone. And what's left is what there is. And, and that is, that's it. I mean, whatever's left is the end. It will just be me, Jesus, and my works. And no way to, to say, no, there should be more. No, no, what, no, no, there was this and there was that. It's just me, Jesus, and my works. This is what was left. This is what there is. Very absolute. No conning Jesus. No talking my way out of it or talking my way into more. This is just what there is. And Jesus, or Paul writes that it's possible that everyone's work would be burned up. All of it. Now, verse 15 says, this doesn't determine our salvation. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as though through fire. Right? Kind of like he's, everything burned up, but he... He still gets to heaven because his faith was in Jesus. The foundation was still there. There'll be a reward based upon what's left, not what's been burned up. You know, the reality is this day is coming for all of us. It is a day for me. It is a day for you, which I will give an account for the life that I've lived and the things that I've done since I've been a believer. It's a day in which you will give an account for the things that you've done. Since you've been a believer. And on that day it will just be me and Jesus. My wife won't be there to tell him how great she thinks I am. My kids won't be there to tell him how great. Nobody else will be there. It will just be me and Jesus. It will just be you and Jesus. And on that day, your best friend's opinion won't matter. On that day, your co-worker's opinion won't matter. On that day, your spouse's opinion won't even matter. There's only one opinion that will matter on that day, and it will be Jesus' opinion. And what he says, that's the, that's the end. It's the final judgment. And whatever's left, that's what there is. It's just me and Jesus and my works. Now, I don't understand all that the Bible says about rewards. I'll be honest with you, I've studied it, and I know the Bible talks about crowns that believers get. Um, all I know for sure about the crowns that we get is that Revelation talks about a day 
when believers will cast their crowns before Jesus. And here's what I I would say I understand the rewards and the crowns to be for. They won't be there for me to say I'm better than you or you to say you're better than me. They will be there for me to cast them at Jesus' feet. And the rewards are based upon the gold, silver, and precious stones that I have done since I was saved. I believe the crowns are given to us to cast at Jesus' feet and say, I did this for you. This is what, what you did for me is worth. It is worth all of this. I did all of this because of what you have done for me. I gave my life. I gave my service. I gave my devotion. I did all of this because of who you are and what you've done. The rewards that are left, I think more than anything, declare the worth we place on Jesus in this life. The worth we place on his death and his resurrection and the salvation that he has given to us. Me, I want a lot to throw at his feet because I want my life to declare what he did for me is worth everything. A part of living and letting my life be centered upon serving Jesus, let that be the driving force of my life, is that I live in light of accountability. I live knowing that one day it will be me. It will be me and Jesus. And it will be me and Jesus in my works. Go ahead and turn back to 2 Corinthians 5. So I, I live to please Jesus. I live in light of accountability to Jesus. And then finally, I live to persuade people for Jesus. Second Corinthians 5 and 11, Paul said, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, this is connected back to the idea of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Where Paul went, Paul told people about Jesus. Paul knew that there was a day of judgment for believers where they gave an account for their life. But he also knew that there was a day of judgment for unbelievers. There was a day when unbelievers would stand before Jesus and give an account to their lives. And it was a vastly different situation. And knowing, he called it the, the terror of the Lord. Right, the absolute accountability to Christ that all humanity has. The, the reality that those apart from Jesus will suffer. Paul said that because of the terror of the Lord, knowing what awaits them, I persuade them. Right, and the idea is that he worked really hard to convince them of their need for Jesus. He worked really hard to make sure they understood they had sinned against God. There was a Savior that died to pay the penalty for those sins. He rose again on the third day. And if they would believe in Him, they could be saved from the judgment that was to come. He worked hard to persuade them to turn to Christ. And what I want us to understand is is several things. First, I, I want us to understand He didn't have a live and let live mentality. As long as it makes them happy, I assume they're okay. That's not the way Paul was. Paul understood there was... A terror of the Lord. Paul understood there was a day of accountability coming. Paul talked to people who believed something everywhere he went. He talked to Jews who believed in God. He talked to Greeks who believed in Zeus. He talked to people who believed in a God of some sort. And he sought to persuade them away from the beliefs they already had to the beliefs that he knew would save them. 
did not have a live and let live as long as you're happy mindset. And what motivated him was knowing this day of judgment right here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his worth. And death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. It says the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. There's a lot that goes into that that we don't have time to cover. But notice the breadth of who is going to stand there. Right? Paul or John goes to great lengths to make sure we understand everybody will be there. Small and great. The dead who are in the sea, right? The idea is, is really everybody. That there is no escape. Small and great. These were the, the small were, were regular people. Poor. Uninfluential. Unknown. The world was unconcerned with. They will be here on this day. The great. Those who were important in the world. Those who were political leaders. Those who were wealthy or famous. They will be here. It will be people who died and whose bodies were never recovered. And no one ever knew about. They will stand there on that day and they will give an account. But all, believe, all unbelievers, regardless of what walk of life they came from, Regardless of where they were, they will be here on this day. There will be an absolute standard of judgment. The books will be opened. But one book declares their works because they'll be judged according to the works that come from them. I think another book will be the Bible that declares God's standard for righteousness. And what will happen is the two will be compared. The Bible said, thou shalt not. Here's what you did. Right? The works that are read from them on that day are not going to be works that make them say, I look, I deserve heaven. They're not going to be works that justify them in the sight of God. Instead, it's going to be works that drive home the point that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's an absolute standard. There is not going to be any exception made for anyone. And all the unbelievers... All who stand here on this day, their name is not in the book of life, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, where they will suffer for all eternity. It's forever and ever. Another place in Revelation talks about the smoke of their torments rising forever and ever. That's the terror of the Lord that Paul spoke of. And that is why he sought to persuade men. You and I, we know this is what's coming. This is the day that will eventually happen. And knowing what we know about the end, it ought to motivate us to do what we can to persuade people to turn from whatever they're in. Their sin, their false religion, their legalism, their morality, whatever, and turn to Jesus Christ and repent and believe and be saved. We can't have a live and let live attitude. 
we are not left here to say, as long as it makes you happy, you're, you're okay. Because they're not. This is their future. We are left here to do what we can to persuade people away from false beliefs into Jesus Christ. And if Jesus, living for Jesus is a driving force in my life, this is something I will do. I will live and do all that I can to persuade people to turn to Jesus and be saved. Let's stand.